It's been a really interesting summer, and I've really enjoyed it. And this last topic we decided to make into a two-part series uh, because it was the second most frequently asked question that people had on, uh, here at Woodland Hills. And it has to do with divorce and remarriage. And we, we laid the foundation for this last week, and we'll continue it this week. Don't worry if you weren't here last week. Uh, this sermon is self-contained. You can get something out of it even if you weren't here last week. But the two are, 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 are somewhat connected. This is a very important topic, and it's also a very controversial topic. And like most of the topics we've talked about this summer, I want to say out loud that it's okay to disagree with me. Just hear where I'm coming from and let the Lord use it as a catalyst for further thought, if nothing else. Uh, it, it, at the very least, it should make us think. Um, but it's also one that I have a certain passion for. Um, Partly because the Lord has seen fit to draw many people here to Woodland Hills who have come out of divorce situations and or who are remarried. And part of it's due to the fact that, that God's created an atmosphere here where there's just the assumption that there are no second-class Christians. There's the assumption that the Lord's sacrifice on Calvary covers all sin, even the sin of broken covenants. And there's been an acceptance and a freedom here uh, that I think has many people, at least, who have been divorced have missed. And I thank God for that. And that's why this topic here is a very important topic that we have to address. The passage I want to read is a passage that has been historically uh, the most important passage in terms of the church's understanding of divorce and remarriage. And I am going to submit to you that it has been often misunderstood. It's found in your bulletins. It comes out of Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 3. Which reads like this. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. Now stop there. That's going to be very important later on. Every time Jesus teaches on divorce and remarriage, he's responding to Pharisees. It's very important to note. Some Pharisees came to test him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to trip him up. So they asked Jesus this very controversial question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, here's the, here's the background there. There's two schools of thought in ancient Judaism on this subject. They all know that the Old Testament allows for divorce and remarriage. The question is, on what grounds can you get divorced and, it's assumed, get remarried? The conservative school said that a man can only divorce his wife. Note, women were never allowed to divorce their husbands. But a man can only divorce his wife if she's done something sexually impure. And then they debated endlessly about what that might be. There's another school of thought that was considered the more progressive school, and they said that a man, a godly man, is allowed to put away his wife, to put, and that's how they phrase it, to send away his wife, divorce her, for any cause. If he finds any sort of ineptitude in her, she doesn't bring breakfast on time. This is a real-life situation they had here. If she doesn't serve breakfast on time, or she just doesn't do herself upright or whatever, a godly man can, put a, can divorce his wife for any reason, and it's godly because it's understood the man is godly. And they had a court that you'd go to uh, in a synagogue, and there'd be a, kind of like a good boys club, and there'd be a bunch of guys there, and they'd hear your case, 
And depending on whether they were progressive or conservative, they'd tell you that you could or could not divorce your, your wife. And usually they said you could. So they want to draw Jesus in on this controversy. Now, Jesus doesn't bite the bait. He never bites the bait. He says this, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and he said to them, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together... What God has joined together, lost my place here. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, Moses never commanded that. Okay, but they're putting words in Moses' mouth. This is Deuteronomy 24. Jesus, who knew the Bible pretty good, said this. He replied, Moses didn't command that. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone, here's how it is, measured next to what was there at the beginning. Anyone who, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. We've got to deal with this. Let's pray. Father, Father, I just thank you for the, the, the ministry that you have raised up here towards people who have been through painful divorces, people who are remarried and struggling with questions. I thank you, Lord God, that your grace has been present here even this morning and your power has been present. I thank you, Lord, for the worship that's occurred here. I thank you, God, for the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that's all over this place. I thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing this morning and what you're going to continue to do even as we speak your word. I pray, Lord God, that you'd land on your word and anoint it and give it power and let this be a time of instruction that would teach us. I pray, Lord God, that you would cause us to be deaf concerning everything that's untrue and to be very perceptive concerning everything that is true. And help us, Lord God, not to be imprisoned by false assumptions, but to let our minds be transformed by your word, we pray in your name. Amen. 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 Have you ever noticed, I'm sure some of you have noticed, that in Christian circles, it's usually okay if you're engaged to somebody or going out with somebody to be out loud about the problems that you're having, the struggles that you're having, the fights that you get involved in. In fact, people oftentimes when they're going out are very out loud about that. As soon as they have a squabble, they go and they complain to all their friends. You know what he said? You know what she said? And they talk about it. I don't even think I like him anymore. I think I want to dump him. And they, they're very out loud about that. They talk about it, and it's okay to have those kind of problems. And they pour their guts out to their friends. And everyone knows when Johnny and Sue are having a fight, they tell everyone about it. And then as soon as, as, soon as Johnny and Sue get married, all of a sudden, it's not okay to be out loud about that. It's like all of a sudden, the same couple that three weeks earlier were involved in all of this very heinous, bitter fighting are supposed to have this perfect marriage where everything goes well because they've got Jesus there, you see. And, and Jesus and a, and, a, and a husband and a wife, they, they, that's just you know, three, threefold cord can't be broken or whatever that scripture says. And they're not supposed to have any kind of problems and things are just supposed to be all right and the love is supposed to be so great and it's supposed to be better than any marriage out there in the world. And all of a sudden there's pressure on you to say, oh, things are going well, things are going great. Oh, Christian marriages are so beautiful. And we all, at least all of us who have been married, know that that is not the truth. I mean, they're beautiful, okay? Don't get me wrong, but they're not all beautiful all the time. Many times they are veritable war zones. And yet it's like the stakes are so high within the church 
that we want to believe so strongly that Christian marriages are super marriages that we develop a sort of subtle no-talk rule that tells people that when you're married, do not, do not say out loud when you've got problems. Because we want to believe that everything's going to be secure. The stakes are so high, and this is so important. If you've got a problem, don't notice it. And if you do notice it, don't say it. And so now whenever you ask, how are things going? Things can be going deaf. And yet they say, oh, praise God, everything's wonderful. Because the stakes are so high. What we don't often realize is that that very no-talk rule contributes to the downfall of many marriages. Because one of the things that's so crucial for there to be health, whether we're talking individual health or whether we're talking marital health, is being okay with being out loud about stuff that is not right. And if you cannot be okay with stuff that is not right, you can never get things right. And so what sometimes happens is that you get a, a newly married wife and a newly married husband together and they got all sorts of problems and they can't figure things out and the sex isn't going good and uh, doing the dishes isn't going good and he never puts the toilet seats down and they're fighting about all sorts of stuff and they're both scared to death because they're not sure they made the right decision and they can't talk to anybody because they're a Christian marriage and things are supposed to be going good. And then what sometimes happens, I mean, the, the one principle here is that we've got to be okay with being out loud about having average, sub-average, even terrible marriages. And there's got to be some context, house churches, for example, where we can be out loud with that kind of stuff and people aren't going to come down our face with a bunch of judgmental cliches when we do so. But then what happens is they, they stuff it and they stuff it and they work for five or ten or fifteen years, maybe five months, who knows, and eventually the marriage just blows up and everyone's shocked because they looked so good together. Things were going so well. No one knew about any problems. And they divorce. And everyone's always just shocked. It's like they think that Mary just woke up one day and said, you know what, Bob, it was great yesterday, but today I don't think I want to be married to you. Bye-bye. When in fact there may have been five months or five years or 15 years of very painful, maybe very sinful stuff that went on that led up to this explosion, but no one knew about it. And that's why very frequently when marriages blow up, Christians, the only thing they know how to do is to pour on all sorts of very cheap cliches. Very, they don't enter into the problem. They just sort of get, come up with all sorts of oughts and shoulds and if-onlys. Because they're not there. They, they, they don't know what went on before this thing blew up. And we don't know how to deal with that. I'd like to believe that most evangelicals most of the time are able to be good, pretty, pretty good listeners. To be able to just let, let a person dump. To do the opposite of what Job's friends did. And that is to pour on all sorts of cliches on people. We, we, we're... I'd like to believe, usually on most issues, pretty good at letting people speak their heart and be out loud with their anger towards God or whatever and just hear that. Now, many places that's not true, but I'd like to believe that here it's true. But when it comes to this one issue, on this one issue, I believe we are the least adept at being good listeners and fellow sufferers than on any other issue. Because here the stakes are so high. And we know so little what goes into the divorces, so we rush in with a pile of thoughts and shoulds and do's. And then what happens very frequently is when the divorce occurs, the, the no-talk rule has been broken, and there's a sense of fear. You know, divorce is contagious, and there's a sense of fear, and, 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 and it's like to not condemn it is to condone it. And, and, and so there's a sort of subtle condemnation that goes on. And divorced people and remarried people very often, and I'm speaking from my interaction with people who have gone through this, very frequently when they need people the most, they have people the least. And when they need some kind of help and they need some kind of support and someone to just be there and love them through this sadness and this tragedy, very frequently what they find is that they're just sort of 
friendless and ostracized and alienated. And no one comes up and says, and blames them for it, maybe. Maybe they do. That happens sometimes. But there's sort of a subtle air about the whole thing. Hmm. Well, what did you do wrong to get this? I believe that there's two groups that the Christian church is, the evangelical Christian church is most inept at loving in the midst of their problems. The first group is people who struggle with homosexuality. The second group are people who have gone through divorces. Because it's just not okay to be compassionate here when the stakes are so high. That's at least been my experience. I'm not going to make a doctrine out of that, but that's been my experience. That's one of the reasons why as soon as you put a sign out that says all welcome and you mean all, they show up. Because they don't, don't often feel that. My conviction is, what we saw last week is this. That God is not a sort of blueprint woodcover God. We talked about this last week. Where there's one plan, one blueprint that is his ideal, and once you've blown that, it's gone forever, and you, and you have a stain or a scar on your life the rest of your life. But God, rather, is a creative, merciful God who works with us wherever we are, whatever situation we're in, whatever depth we've sunk into. He's there. He's desirous. He pursues us because he wants to work with us in the middle of that situation. And the end of our failure is the beginning of his new project. And when plan A doesn't work, he's a God who mercifully comes up with plan B. And when plan B is blown, he mercifully comes up with plan C. You see this, I believe, throughout the Bible concerning marriage, as well as many other topics. He's got an ideal in Genesis chapter 2 about what marriage is supposed to be. A husband and a wife, one flesh, united together, mutually submission, reflecting the very love of the Godhead itself. That's what marriage is supposed to be. But the fall happens, and the Lord tells us that, you know what, that plan, that ideal, is not going to be attainable in this world. You strive for it, but now he says in Genesis 3.16 that the wife's going to seek to manipulate the husband, the husband's going to control the, the wife, and what was to be a beautiful thing turns into a state of war. And so he says this. His second ideal is, is this, and it comes out in Paul and it comes out in Jesus, that in this world, because of the warfare of marriage, because of the warfare of the world, it's better not to get married. You know that? Read Matthew 19. Read 1 Corinthians 7. The ideal would be not to get married because it's going to involve all sorts of problems. You can serve, the God, with a, with a, you can serve God with a more pure heart if you don't get married. But most people can't do that. And Jesus says so, and Paul says so. You need a special gift, Jesus says, to, to live that way. And the Bible calls it a gift. Being single is a gift. But for most people, Paul says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You're wired to get married. You're wired for that kind of companionship. And so even though it's going to cause problems and struggles, the Lord says his third plan now is to get married. But even then, in some cultures, sometimes, for some reasons, while monogamy is always God's ideal, he loves monogamy, he hates all the alternatives, sometimes that's the lesser of two evils. To go with polygamy, for example, throughout the Old Testament, you find God allowing for polygamy because monogamy in this fallen state caused women to be starving on the streets, and God would rather have polygamous marriages than starving women and children. So he says, the lesser of two evils is, is, is polygamy. This is a God who's not up in his prudish standoff, la-la land heaven, saying, oh, I will not deal with messy situations. He comes in and he says, what's the lesser of two evils? And many times, in fact, I'd say most of the time in our life, the issue is not as what is God's ideal. The issue is what's the best thing given the real, given the here and now. What's the lesser of two all... The, the, the least evil of all the alternatives. And then even then with monogamy and, 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 uh, and having concubines and whatnot, God's ideal in that situation, and we're now four steps down the ladder, God's ideal is to, is to be married for life. But in a fallen world, God knows he deals with it. Divorce sometimes occurs. And so what he does is he tells us in Deuteronomy 24, let's make the best of a bad situation. If it's going to occur, let's not dehumanize women by having it occur. So he slows down the process. He comes up, comes up with some rules. This is a God 
who's willing to work with us where we are at. Now, the million-dollar question that we got to ask, and it needs to be addressed, is this. Does God's willingness to work with us at the end of our failures and to weave our failures into new successes, does God's willingness to bring good out of evil include for the divorced person the possibility of remarriage? The possibility of remarriage. What do we do with Matthew 19? Jesus says that if any man divorces his wife, because women weren't allowed to divorce their husbands, so he says if any man divorces his wife and marries another, unless it's for the cause of marital unfaithfulness, he commits adultery. Now here's the, I, I, the, 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 the traditional understanding of this. I'm going to raise some questions about the traditional understanding of it and then give an alternative, another possibility. The traditional understanding, the traditional Catholic understanding, and most Protestants have adapted this understanding is this. It is believed that when a husband and wife come together and they become one flesh, it's believed that they are, in God's eyes, married forever. And, and that though they may divorce in human terms, God never recognizes the divorce. So when they divorce and one marries another person, they are very literally, he is or she is very literally committing adultery. Because in God's eyes, the, 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 the program goes, they're still married. Unless... Your spouse is the first one to commit adultery or get remarried. Same thing, they think. Then, once they do it, you're off the hook. Okay, now, now you're free to get remarried. So it's a question of who does it first, you see. If the other person does it first, now, now it's marital unfaithfulness. I mean, you, you, could be, you could be involved in, you can hate each other. You could be involved in all sorts of ungodliness. You don't want to get married. You don't want to be married. Both of you want to uh, develop other relationships. But the one who does it first is guilty, and then the one who holds out the longest is, is guiltless. Uh, something's weird there. But that's the, that's the standard interpretation. Now, here's some questions. And I just want to be, give me the permission to be out loud with some questions here. Things that I don't get about this. Things that, for me, raise up the question of whether or not this is a real, whether or not this is a, the right interpretation of that passage. Here's some questions. One is this. Why is it that nobody, and I mean nobody, follows this interpretation out consistently? What I mean is this. If, in fact, you believe, with, you really believe that remarriage involves adultery, to the point where the adultery is enough to keep people from ever getting remarried, it seems to me that that same logic should lead you to go one step further and to now approach people who have been remarried and tell them to get a divorce. Because in your logic, they are living in a state of adultery. And we don't ordinarily in church when there are believers that we know about living together, whatever, just, just say, well, that's okay. But why is it that nobody does that? There, there, there's one little denomination that I know of, and I thank God that it's little because it causes incredible nightmarish pain for kids and stuff involved in, in remarriages. There's only one little denomination that I know of that actually tells people who have been, that are involved in second or third marriages to get a divorce and try to get back with their first spouse. Everybody else recognizes that that can be, in, in the real world, a very cruel thing to do. When there are kids involved and other things involved, that would be a nightmare, very impractical, and it seems ungodly thing to do. But the fact that people intuit that, doesn't that mean that maybe something's wrong with this interpretation? Because doing that would follow from this interpretation. I hope you follow me on this. Or let me put it this way. There's a denomination that I know of. It's a denomination I used to belong to. In fact, there's a few denominations that hold this position. And they say this. If you are divorced and remarried, you can come to church and you can be a member of the church and you can pay tithes, but you cannot be 
involved in the ministry. Why? Because you're remarried, and that involves adultery. But see, if, if, they're, if their supposed adultery is enough to disqualify them from ministry, shouldn't it disqualify them from membership altogether? I mean, call it straight. Is it adultery or not? Do you believe this or not? If you do believe it, then don't just disqualify them from ministry. Go all the way with it. Be consistent with it. And see, this is also why you never have preachers, even who hold this position, preaching sermons on this consistently. They don't deal with this topic because it would be, be nightmares if you all of a sudden, if I were to say everybody who's uh, remarried here should now get divorced and try to get back with their first spouse, do you know the mess, the pain, the ungodliness, the struggles, the nightmares that that would cause? They don't do that. But instead, there's sort of a subtle, there's a subtle air that says that, you know, no one confronts it out loud, but it's sort of like, Pastors and sometimes congregations have a subtle belief that really God's not honoring their marriage. And that's why many times people who are remarried just feel ostracized in churches. Because no one says it all over, but they, everyone's going off this sort of hidden assumption that, you know, this is not really a godly marriage. Well, either say it out loud or shut up. E- either deal with it, be consistent with your belief, or re-examine your belief. Another question is this. If in fact, if in fact, I'm just asking questions here. If, in fact, you're really still married to your first partner, well, then it seems to me that if you're going to be consistent, even some first marriages should be annulled so you can go back and find the first person you had sex with, some people who were involved in fornication. Well, if being one flesh, being one flesh with somebody is what actually marries you in God's eyes, then for all, for, for all time, you are wedded to that first person. Maybe you should get rid of your first wife, you're going to be, or first husband, if you're going to be consistent with this. But a second thing is this. If, in fact, you're still married to your first spouse, just asking a lot of questions here, okay? That's all I'm doing. If, in fact, you're still married to your first spouse, why is it in the Old Testament that the one person that, you, that is assumed you're not allowed to remarry when you've been divorced is the person that you divorced? Read Deuteronomy 24. When a woman is divorced by a man... She's allowed to marry anybody. In fact, throughout the whole Bible, and this is another one of those questions, God assumes that you're going to be getting remarried. Not getting remarried was not an option for a woman unless you wanted to be a prostitute or starve in the ancient world. So it's assumed that you're going to get remarried. But the one person you're not allowed to remarry in the Old Testament, and there's reasons for this that I think are culturally relative. Don't feel bad if you got remarried to a person that you divorced. I think this is culturally relative, but it's interesting at least. Let's see how fast I can talk. String sentences together. Here I go. It's interesting to me at least. That the Old Testament prohibits a husband from remarrying his wife after he's divorced her and she's married another and then divorced him. You can marry anyone else. But now, if in fact, in God's eyes, you're still married to that first person, why is that the case? Why is it that God would allow for polygamy? And in the Old Testament, there's at least 14 verses that where God speaks about polygamy as a blessing. He says to David, I bless you with so many wives. How could you go after Bathsheba? Well, how can polygamy be a blessing if, in fact, you're really only married to that first person? Something, I think, strange is going on there, folks, which leads me to think that that standard interpretation is not accurate. A second thing is this. Second thing. One way, one way of deciding whether a particular interpretation of the Bible is accurate or not is to ask this question, what fruits does it produce? Does it produce godly fruits or ungodly fruits? If it produces ungodly fruits, that's one indication that you might be, in fact, interpreting the Bible wrong. I would argue that this interpretation produces some very ungodly fruits. One of the ungodly fruits is this. There are many, many people who are not wired for celibacy. 
Many people for whom Paul's statement that it's better to marry than to burn with passion, it applies to them. Whether they've never been married or whether they have been married and are now single, they're still wired in such a way that without marriage, there's a part of them that is empty. There's a vacancy there. There's a loneliness there. There's a struggling there that does not glorify God. And they hear this mandate that they can never get mar- married again as a curse, as a total curse. Now, I've known people who have come from marriages before they were Christian, and I've known people who have come out of uh, broken marriages where they were, if there ever is an innocent party, they were it, and yet they believe that they can never get remarried again because of this verse. And you see them struggle. If you, if, you, if you hear their pain, if you hear their loneliness, they're just like fish living out of water. This is not their element. They're not wired this way. And God can bless them. God can use them. God can give them joy. But still, let's be real. They, 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 they're living in a, in a sad situation. And that does not seem to be glorifying to God. But there's, there's other things about this interpretation that lead to ungodly consequences. Consider this. I've known not a few people who have come out of divorces who hold this traditional interpretation who actually pray for their spouse to commit adultery. That's true. And it makes perfect sense if you believe that. The rule here, okay, the only only out, the only out you have is if your partner has sex with another person. The minute they do that, of course, now we've got to define what sex is, okay? But you know, the minute they do that, you're free. Now you can, with perfect justification, go out and get remarried. But So you just, it's sort of a waiting game. Who's going to do it first, okay? And, and, and I've known people who pray, oh God, send a beautiful woman his way that he'd get married again, and then I'd be free to, without guilt, get remarried. Isn't there something profoundly wrong with this way of thinking here? Anything that leads to this sort of, this sort of interpretation, something's got to be wrong here. Even the whole legality of it, of, of like, it turns, it turns God into another legalistic accountant where you're trying to jump through loopholes. It's a big loophole. I mean, you can have two people there. You can have person A and person B. Person B was 99% responsible for the divorce, just did everything in the world wrong. They get a divorce. Person A ends up getting married first. And now person B is the innocent one, and he can go out and get remarried and be in good standing and be on boards and whatnot. But person A, because they, weren't the first, because, because they were the first one who engaged in sex with another person, now all of a sudden they're the guilty party. Something's, something's a little bizarre here, folks. Something's wrong with that interpretation. Turns it into a loophole. They can hate each other. They can both... What you have in your heart no longer matters. It's this technicality. Hmm, who was the first one? Something is, is, is a little odd there. There's, this is odd, too. This is another question. Where else, in, on any subject, anywhere, did Jesus ever go about tightening the belt on the Old Testament? You don't usually find Jesus doing that. In the Old Testament, divorce is permitted, and in the Old Testament, remarriage is assumed. But now we're to believe that Jesus comes along and says, well, enough of this. I've had enough of this. I'm, I'm, we're just going to tighten the belt on that. It's no longer permissible. Jesus normally doesn't go around doing that. Saying, well, we've, we've, we've just got to draw in the reins here on, on the Old Testament. It was too loose back then. Are, are our hearts not as hard as they were back then? Do, are we not in need of the same sort of grace that God gave then? That is not at all in any way to condone divorce. It's simply to recognize the reality of the hardness of our hearts. A final thing is this. Concerning this exception clause, I'm just going to say this briefly. It not only leads to sort of a legalistic, te- technical sort of thing, like who is the one who first does the act. It, it leads to sort of an artificial legality that just rings wrong. But there's also this about it. Jesus does not say what you'd expect him to say on this standard interpretation. He does not say, whoever divorces his wife except for the cause of adultery 
and remarries another, commits adultery. He doesn't say that. He doesn't use the word moikia, which is adultery. He uses the word porneia, which is a much more general word, but many times it means fornication. Now, the scholars debate about what exactly Jesus is getting at here, but I want to submit uh, very quickly one, one possibility to you, and I'll bring it in later on. But it could be this. In ancient Judaism, when, when, in fact, it's still practiced in some segments of Orthodox Judaism today, when you get married, there's a one-year trial period um, where um, you do not consummate the marriage. The husband and wife, they are legally married, but it's, they're not officially married. They go, the husband goes away and builds a house, and all those parables about the bridegroom coming and stuff are, are premised on this idea of marriage. There's a one-year period, a betrothal period. Mary and Joseph were in that stage. That's why they hadn't had sex yet. Um, it, it, it was this one-year married state where you don't do it yet, okay? And in that case, it was understood that if the wife fornicates with anybody, and that's what the word porneia can be translated as, if she involved, gets involved in sex, that's not the same as adultery, but, uh, but a husband can then break off the marriage uh, officially. In that case, what Jesus is getting at here, he's not giving a technical loophole. Anyone who divorces their wife, except for this little loophole thing, whoever does it first, he's not doing that. What he's saying is, anyone who divorces their wife, once it's been consummated, once it's become an official marriage, once there's been a union of one flesh, well, after that point, you commit adultery when you remarry another. Now, that will become important as we get on a little bit later on with this whole thing. Okay. For those reasons, I think we need to consider a different way of looking at this whole thing. Let me just spew, just kind of pour this out here. What is Jesus getting at in Matthew 19? He also tell, talks this way in, in Matthew chapter 5. To understand what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 19 and Matthew chapter 5, you've got to know what Jesus is about in his basic ethical teachings. God is a God. This sets the background for this, okay? And please follow me on this, because without this, I think we inevitably end up Jesus, turning Jesus into another legalistic textbook, which is just the opposite of how he wants to be regarded. God is a God who, as we saw last week, is a God who will work with us no matter where we are. However low we sink, he's there. However far we run, he's there. However messed up things get, he's there. However screwed up we may make our life, he is there to try to untangle it and build something new. He's a God who's a God of mercy. He's not a prudish God in a lot of land who doesn't want anything to do with us when we've blown his ideal blueprint. Rather, he's a God who works from plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D. But the one thing he asks, the one thing he requires is this. A heart that will simply say, I am a sinner and I need you. The one thing that, that, that the Lord looks for, the one thing that the Lord requires, in fact, the one thing that the Lord needs, if he's going to do his rebuilding work in our life, is a heart that sees that you need the Lord. A heart that says, I do not want to be Lord of my own life. I cannot do it on my own. I am fallen. I am a sinner. I screw things up on my own. I need you, Lord, to rebuild me. My only hope is you. That's what the Lord's looking for. And when he finds that heart, when there is that heart, there is no trophy that he cannot make out of the, out of the fallenness of our life. But where there is not that heart, there is literally nothing that God can do with us. And this is why Jesus, if you read the Gospels carefully, he never once had problems with the, the vilest of sinners. No problem there. But he had tons and tons of problems with religious uptight Pharisees. Woe to you, vipers! You white sepulchers! You poisonous snakes! You blind leaders of the blind! The deepest crevice of hell is prepared for you. He didn't say that to the prostitutes. He didn't say that to the tax collectors. 
He said it to the religious leaders of the day. Why? Because they were so religious. They were so holy. They were so self-righteous. They were so together. They thought they had it all there. And their only hope of ever being saved was for Jesus to come down their throats big time and expose their self-righteousness for being what it is. A great deal of Jesus' teaching in the Bible is there for the expressed purpose of undermining the self-righteousness of religious people. People who think that they can climb their own ladder of religious deeds and work their way up to God. People who really believe that they are holy enough to be on their own terms, in their own standing, compatible with God. What the Lord is doing, not to shame them, but to restore them, is coming down their face and showing them, trying to bring it, make them aware of the fact, the reality that apart from God's grace, they don't stand a chance. So what he does is he brings out God's ideal. That God's ideal that we are 17 steps removed from, it serves a very useful purpose when you're dealing with a self-righteous purpose person because the Lord can just put them up right next to that person and say, you think you're tall? Measure yourself against this standard. It's like when I was about ninth grade, I was a real cocky drummer. I thought I was so good. I looked around at all the other ninth grade drummers and I was the best, hell, by far and away. I looked at all the high school drummers, I was the best. So I told my music teacher, I don't need professional lessons, $8 an hour. Forget that stuff, man. I'm, I'm learning on my own. So he took me to a Buddy Rich concert. Buddy Rich was like the best drummer in the world. I think he is the best drummer that's ever existed. And, I, and he got me a front row seat, and I sat there, and my jaw hit the ground as I watched what a really good drummer was like. And it was humbling. It wasn't shaming, but it was humbling. And I signed up for lessons because I knew I needed help. That is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing throughout the Gospels. Now, in the power of His Spirit, we actually are empowered to live His teachings. But their first cutting-edge purpose is to completely decap, completely take off of the knees anyone who thinks they can stand on their own feet. You think you are so righteous because you don't kill. The law says thou shalt not kill. Oh, and you guys don't kill. And so you prance around with these little holy robes thinking that you're so good because you don't kill. But I'm going to tell you something. If you want to get right with God on your own basis, on your own behavior, then not kill. Killing isn't good enough. You can't even harbor it in your heart. And anyone says to their brother, Raka is in danger of hellfire. And you go, what's Raka? Well, Raka is in the first century is like flipping someone the bird. It was just, I was, I was sort of saying, like, like, you know, Raka! You know? And Jesus says, anyone who has that in their heart, you're already in danger of hellfire. So if you want to make yourself right with God, okay, then do that. But don't ever think about Raka. Oh, you think you're pretty righteous, pretty holy, pretty pompous standing on your moral platform because you don't steal like those terrible Gentiles, but do you live with a spirit of generosity? Because if you want to be holy with God on your own basis, that's what you got to do. And so anyone who steals from you, are you if they steal your, your shirt, are you willing to give them your coat also? If they want to go one mile, are you willing to go two miles also? If not, don't even think about being compatible with God on, on your own basis. And you think that you're pretty good because you don't take frivolous oaths. You don't swear by, you know, the hairs of your head or whatever. But Jesus says, unless your own integrity is so, your reputation is so perfect that you don't ever need to take oaths, then you have no place in the kingdom of God. You think you're pretty righteous, pretty pompous, pretty holy because you don't commit adultery like those sinners over there. But do you ever think about it? Because next to the yardstick of God, next to the yardstick of God, to think about it is enough to send you into hell. You've already committed adultery with her. And his purpose for doing this whole thing is not to come up with a new, tighter, more restricted social legislation like we should stone people who think about adultery. His purpose is to say, fall on your knees. You are sinners. You are in need of a Savior. You're sick. 
You need a physician. Call on the physician. Let the physician help you. Your sinners need a forgiveness. Let the Savior forgive you. And so it is in his teaching on divorce and remarriage. Every time Jesus teaches on this, he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to Pharisees. And see, the situation is this. They feel really proud, real righteous of the fact. And they, they debate the details of this. But they feel proud of, of the fact that they don't just divorce their wives for any reason, really. They, they go to a court. You see, there's a court that was in the temple and a court in most synagogues. And you'd go there and, and, and they'd hear your case. And, and then they'd say, well, you can divorce or can't divorce your wife. And they'd usually say you could because it's a good old boys club. And then you can feel righteous, feel justified. Hmm, it was godly that I did that. Jesus, in the face of that, is saying, and this is how he always responded. They're trying to trip him up on a legality. Jesus totally bypasses the legality. You see, by the way, if he, was, if he was here giving this exception clause as the one out for marriage, he would, in fact, be playing right into their hand. And it would make it completely unintelligible why he went back to Genesis 2. But Jesus is not getting around technicalities. He's not giving us little loopholes. He's not biting the bait. He's not giving into their little self-righteous program. What he does is this. You guys feel righteous about this question. You debate the fine points. What is justified? What is not justified? But go back to the beginning. Measure yourself against God's ideal. What's God's ideal? God's ideal. God's perfect program. If you want to be compatible with God, this is what you've got to do in your marriage. You need a Genesis chapter 2 marriage. A Genesis chapter 3 marriage is too late. You're already going to be needing forgiveness with a Genesis chapter 3 marriage after the fall. You need a Genesis chapter 2 marriage. And there you see God's plan is to have one fleshness, perfect love, perfect, perfect concentration in terms of your fidelity in the mind to your spouse, never even thinking about another woman. That's what you need. And anything less than that is sin. God deals with sin. God permits divorce. God allows for remarriage. But you, you better not feel pompous about it. Feel righteous about it. The very atmosphere of your question indicts you. Next to God's standard, Jesus is saying, there is no holy divorce. There's no righteousness about this. It's the hardness of your heart that leads to divorce. And all the squabblings about who's right or who's wrong are, are really irrelevant. What you first need to know, the most fundamental thing you need to know, is that you need the grace of God. You need the forgiveness of God. You need the cleansing of God. So get off of your high horse in asking this question. You need the grace of God. And don't think that this little court that you've got justifies your divorces. That's why the Lord, the Lord says, what well, God has joined together, man can't put asunder. You think he's telling this to the Pharisees. You think that your court has this authority to annul what God puts together and you're righteous because of that? There is no righteousness because of that. You're breaking God's ideal. And God's ideal involves this, sexual union with one person throughout your whole life. Anything else, and even thinking about anything else, is by God's highest standard, adultery. So don't go around thinking that you're righteous when you get remarried. It's all a break from God's ideal. To think about it as adultery, polygamy in the strictest sense of the word involves adultery. God still says sometimes it's the lesser of two evils. And he's not here saying that therefore polygamy should never occur and divorce is never going to occur and remarriage should never occur. But what he is saying is that in all of this from beginning to end, you've got to know that were it not for the grace of God, you could not stand before the throne of God. He's trying to take out the rug of self-righteousness from all who would be inclined towards Phariseeism. And see, what we sometimes do is we read these passages and we jump right back into the legalistic debate that the Jews were having that they tried to chap Jesus, Jesus in. And you get people squabbling. Well, who, who had sex first? And we turn into this little legal... This, 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 all the technicalities that Jesus was purposely trying to get rid of. 
simply to say, there's one thing you've got to know about yourself, and that is that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. God is a God who, when plan A doesn't work, he says, let's go for plan B. And when B doesn't work, he goes, let's go for plan C. And when C doesn't work, he doesn't get tired of you. He's there with plan D. Whatever our feelings, whatever our faults, even covenant-breaking, he's able to say, I can weave this into a beautiful thing. And that doesn't justify the sin, but it gives hope to the sinner. And he can make something beautiful out of your life. And I believe that that includes the possibility of remarriage for a person who's been divorced. And I don't see anything in the Bible that prohibits that. But what will allow God to work with you in this sin, as with all of our sin, is having this heart that says, Lord, I need you. I cannot do it on my own. I need to be forgiven. I am not faultless. And there's not a person in this congregation that could stand up and cast the first stone at anybody, including those who have been divorced and remarried, including those who have been divorced and remarried twice. Next to God's ideal, I'm an adulterer. How can I throw stones at someone else? I've committed adultery. I always wondered why, if their adultery supposedly disqualifies them from ministry, why doesn't my adultery disqualify me from ministry? Jesus calls thinking about adultery, adultery. I should be disqualified. Good night. No. (laughs) I should! I know I'm a sinner. You know you're a sinner. And I think about killing in my heart, coming off on the road sometime. I I, I go raka. It's really good. You can rock at somebody and they don't have a clue as what you're saying. <laughs> rock out. None of it. This has got to be the place where we just know this, that you know, God empowers us to live holy lives, but he also empowers us to be reconstructed when we fail at living holy lives. And this has got to be the context. The Christian church, under the blood of Jesus Christ, has got to be the context where... I, it, it's simply, the technicality of how you got to your fallen state doesn't matter. That you're fallen and that you recognize it is what, what's important. And what God can do with it is what's important. And that's why God is a God of love and a God of grace. This doesn't condone anything. And if you're hearing what I'm doing as being soft on divorce, you've misunderstood the whole thing about grace. God does hate divorce and he hates all sin. That's not the issue. And if you're married here and struggling, shut the door on that possibility. But if you're here this morning and it's too late for that option, the question is, how, does God, how is God's grace going to surround you and love you and rebuild you and restore you? And there's no one in this congregation that can tell you how that's going to look except for God. And if there's someone who can stand up and say, I'll throw the first stone, we know one thing about them, and that is that they are the most vilest person in this whole congregation. Because that was the one kind of person that Jesus could not make headway with. If you can admit that there's sin involved in this, there's hope for you. Father... Father, I I can't comprehend your grace. I can't comprehend your love. None of us can, Lord. I can't comprehend your goodness. You are so good. Your ability to work with us, to incarnate yourself in our messes, Lord, is, is just incredible. I pray, God, that every person here this morning who has been through the pain of divorce and maybe feels totally alone in that, I pray, God, that they would feel your presence there and your love there and forgiveness there. And that you show them, Lord, that you can make something beautiful even out of their mistakes. And that there's a ministry available for them, Lord, precisely because of their mistakes. And God, I pray that you'd humble all of us in this way. I pray, Lord God, for marriages that are struggling here this morning, that they could find an avenue to be out loud with the reality of their struggles, and that your Spirit would use even other people, Lord God, to help them work out the struggles, Lord God, and that they develop marriages that are honoring you and glorify you. 
And all this, Lord God, we go out of this place knowing that we're sinners, but knowing that we are pure and holy and justified in your sight because of your blood, and that you can make something beautiful out of our life because of that. In Jesus' name, I give you praise. Amen.